Today's episode of Wild World is sponsored by Lindblad Expeditions. Discovery is in the Lindblad DNA. Visit expeditions.com to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore with Lindblad Expeditions. Some of science's biggest questions are about our origins. How did the universe form? How did life begin? What caused the mass extinction events that reshaped life on our planet? Surprisingly, one of the best places to search for clues about these questions is Antarctica. So there's lots of these kind of zones near the Transantarctic Mountains, for example, where there's many, many of these blue ice fields, as they're called, where there's you know high ablation rates of the ice, and, and these meteorites are resurfacing there. And it's amazing because you know I, I kind of know in my head the process of how this happens and how we think this happens, but it's still just mind-blowing when you actually go there and you see these rocks that are just sitting out there, hundreds of them, <laughs> and, and they're all meteorites. <laughs> this is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and in today's episode... We're venturing to the southern tip of our planet in search of clues about our origins and our future. Antarctica is perhaps most famous for its gigantic ice sheets and its charismatic animals like blue whales, leopard seals, and emperor penguins. But there's a lot of other important research that takes place on Antarctica which is why there are some 70 different research stations scattered across the continent. Mini Wadwa is a planetary scientist who studies meteorites to learn about the formation of our universe and what conditions are like in other parts of our solar system. She's a professor at Arizona State University, where she's also director of the School of Earth and Space Exploration. Dr. Wadwa also serves as the principal scientist for the Mars Sample Return Mission at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Her work has taken her to remote field sites around the world, including to Antarctica. Minnie Wadwa, welcome to Wild World. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So you study meteorites. What is a meteorite and how is it different from other kinds of rocks in space like meteors or asteroids? Yeah, so meteorites are basically space rocks that have made their way through the Earth's atmosphere. They've basically survived that process of kind of, um, you know, ablation that they go through when they first sort of fall into the Earth's atmosphere. You might see fireballs during that process. So they make their way through the Earth's atmosphere and they land on the Earth and are collected so that they can actually be studied in laboratories here on Earth. So meteorites basically are those rocks that have actually survive that process of falling through the Earth's atmosphere. So what are some of the kinds of things that we can learn from studying meteorites? So, you know, meteorites have been called the poor man's space probes. <laughs> so it's, it's, an, it's an apt description because in a way they are rocks that sample places and times in our solar system that we really wouldn't have access to in any other way. So we have spacecraft missions that go to asteroids and we have spacecraft missions that go to various planets and do remote observations. We might even be ambitious enough to bring back pieces of some of these places with with spacecraft. And we've done that, but that's a very, very expensive endeavor and it can, you know, it's definitely um, a challenging 
uh, thing for us to, to do. And, you know, I think there's a value, obvious, obvious value to that. But meteorites in a way provide mm-hmm. us with a very cheap and easy way to access some of these materials. The downside, of course, is that you don't actually know very well the context or the geologic context for where these things actually come from. Specifically, we can broadly say, hey, these types of meteorites come from asteroids. We know that there's actually meteorites that come from Mars and from the moon. And we can actually, you know, in one or two cases, actually pinpoint the specific asteroids that some of these meteorites come from. There's actually a group of meteorites that we think come from the asteroid Vesta, for example. And we've got some evidence, you know, to show that basically some of the reflectance or the light reflected from Vesta matches very well the reflectance spectra or the light reflected from these meteorites. And so you can actually make some of those connections every once in a while, but for the most part, mm-hmm. you know, meteorites lack geologic context, but they're a great way to actually sample places and times in our solar system that we otherwise couldn't. So these meteorites are essentially chunks of other celestial bodies of a, of a planet or an asteroid or some other body that is out there in space and somehow it ended up here on the surface of Earth. And so by studying it, we can study the properties of that body. Is that is that essentially right? That's essentially right. And how they get here, of course, is through impacts between some of these bodies. So asteroids collide with each other and there's fragments of asteroids that actually hit Moon and Mars and they eject pieces from these planets. And so these objects traverse space and eventually go into Earth-crossing orbits and can make their way to the Earth as meteorites. So what are some of the ways that meteorites have been impactful for our history? I mean, you know, weren't meteorites involved in kind of the formation of the Earth in the first place? So meteorites are really, I mean, if you think about it, they really are fundamental to our very existence, I would say. (laughs) Hmm. You know, people, when they talk about meteoritics and the science of meteorites, they think, oh, yeah, it's some sort of very specialized niche field. But it's, you know, when you think about it, it's actually not. It's fundamental to our understanding of how our planet formed, how our solar system formed, how life began potentially on the Earth, how life has evolved since that time. All of these things really have been affected by meteorites in one way or another, we think. So early in the history of the Earth, there it was certainly in being impacted by meteorites, and it's been suggested that some of these might have carried organic compounds that could be the precursors of, of life on our planet. And, you know, we have seen meteorites that have very carbon-rich compositions. They've got amino acids and other complex organic molecules that really could have participated in that kind of uh, prebiotic chemistry that would have been required for the origin of life. Yeah, so it's essentially the building blocks of life may have been sort of transported here on On meteorites. Exactly, so the raw materials, the building blocks of of life certainly could have been. So that's something that, you know, we don't uh, know exactly how life started on Earth, but there are hypotheses and certainly, you know, lots of studies of meteorites that have shown that they uh, carry organic compounds and uh, the relevant kinds of um, building blocks, as you said. And certainly mm-hmm. since that time, of course, after life had started to thrive on the Earth, there have been a number of extinction events on our planet. You know, there are 
There's, I think, five major extinction events in Earth history. And certainly we have evidence that one of these, 65 million years ago, which is when the dinosaurs went extinct and some 75% right. of all other species on Earth went extinct, we mm-hmm. do have evidence to suggest that it was a large impact at that time that caused the global catastrophe that resulted in that extinction. And it's been suggested for, you know, other major extinctions as well, but we don't we don't have the evidence for some of the other ones. But I'm sure that, you know, impacts have happened throughout Earth history and they've had certainly local regional effects and we know at least in one instance, uh, you know, in the case of the dinosaurs, for example, there <laughs> it resulted in a major extinction event, which of course changed the course of, of life on our planet and is the reason why mammals are now dominant and human beings have evolved to where, where we are. So in a way, we owe right. our existence to meteorites. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that is super cool. Maybe the, the oh, our existence in terms of our origins as living things, as well as the fact that we mammals got, got a chance there. Right. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the Cretaceous. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. Very interesting. So, so you're studying something about the, like the, the composition and the chemical uh, makeup of these meteors in your lab. Is that right? That's right. So in my laboratory, we actually have mass spectrometry instrumentation that measures individual atoms actually uh, that make up these meteorites and we can do lots of chemical and isotope characterization of these materials and also determine exactly when they were formed so we do radiogenic isotope dating in my laboratory and some of the work that we do we look at some of the I guess the most ancient materials or inclusions in these meteorites that can tell us something about the timing of when the solar system exactly was formed. And so we're doing a lot of work and trying to understand the timescales as well as the conditions that existed in the earliest history of our solar system. So how old are some of these meteorites? I can tell you precisely how old. <laughs> so, well, <laughs> I bet you can. <laughs> yeah, it depends. I mean, they have a range of ages, but most of the... Uh, meteorites that originated in the asteroidal region, pieces that are pieces of asteroids, the small bodies, they're very, very old, almost as old as the solar system itself, close to about 4.6 billion years old. The oldest inclusions oh. that I was talking about earlier, these are, these have been very precisely dated to be about 4.568 billion years old. So, and we know that with a precision that's, you know, plus minus sub million year precision. So we can date these things very, very precisely. That's about as old as, or a little older than the the earth itself, is it not? It is definitely older than the earth. So the first solids Mm -hmm. that formed, so, you know, our solar system formed from this cloud of gas and dust and the sun formed at the center of it all. And you know, as things cooled down in the disk, it, it basically resulted in the formation of small bodies, protoplanets, as they're called, which then accreted to form larger bodies like the Earth. And so the meteorites and small bodies that were the parents of these meteorites, so the, the original kind of asteroidal bodies on which these meteorites formed, they formed very, very early, very close to the beginning of the solar system. The Earth started to form uh, probably within a few million years of that, 
And the formation process for the Earth likely extended for maybe tens of millions of years. But uh, yes, I mean, we believe that the Earth was mostly fully formed about 4.5 billion years ago. You're listening to Wild World. My guest is Minnie Wadwa, director of the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University. When we come back, we'll hear about Minnie's expeditions to Antarctica in search of meteorites. If you want to see our wild world for yourself, one of the best ways is with Lindblad Expeditions. Discovery is in the Lindblad DNA. They've been exploring the most amazing places on the planet for more than 50 years. They have the most advanced fleet of expedition ships in the world, and their trips create unprecedented opportunities for guests. Visit expeditions.com to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore next. This is Wild World. I'm your host, Scott Solomon, and my guest is Minnie Wadwa, who has traveled to Antarctica in search of meteorites, which she studies to learn about the origins and evolution of our solar system. So this is an incredible amount of information that you can get from from studying these meteorites once you get them to your lab. Exactly. But of course, you got to go find them first. And so (laughs) I know there are collections with meteorites, but a part of what you do in your job is to go out and, and search for new meteorites. Yeah. Right? And... (laughs) <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> it, it, it sure is. I've been very, very fortunate, actually, to have had the opportunity to go twice to Antarctica to hunt for meteorites. And uh, and meteorites are really, you know, they're falling everywhere on Earth with equal probability. It's not that they're falling any more frequently in Antarctica or anything like that. It's just that it's easier to find meteorites, first of all, in some of the, you know, dry desert regions of the world, including hot and cold deserts, Antarctica being a cold desert, of course. These are obviously objects that, you know, when they interact with the Earth's atmosphere and humidity and, and water, they decompose quickly. And so if you if you want to find meteorites, the best places are dry deserts that will preserve some of these rocks for a long time. And then, of course, you know, the lack of any kind of vegetation makes it <laughs> makes it easier to spot these things. And then Antarctica is somewhat special as well because it's got these thick ice sheets that move very, very slowly out from the central part of the continent out towards uh, the coast of Antarctica. And they carry along with them these rocks that have fallen on the ice over the ages. And so there's almost like a conveyor belt-like mechanism that carries these meteorites that have fallen on the ice And it might take hundreds of thousands of years for these meteorites to get moved along with these glaciers and these ice sheets. And what happens, though, is that, you know, if that ice sheet comes up against some kind of mountain range or some subsurface obstruction, the ice tends to move flow upwards. And, of course, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Antarctica, but they have these really, really cold and and fast-moving winds called catabatic winds, they're gravitationally-driven winds. And so they really ablate the surface of the ice as it's moving up. And and a lot of these meteorites resurface in particular zones that are 
essentially called stranding surfaces where this kind of, you know, ice comes up against some kind of mountain range or something. And, and the ablation rate is high enough that these meteorites resurface. And so you can actually find sometimes hundreds of meteorites in a very, very small area, maybe the size of a football field or something might have hundreds of meteorites there just because of this process of, you know, carrying these meteorites along in these ice sheets and then resurfacing them. So it's just incredible. Yeah. I mean, I just, the, the, this visual that you, you've created of like this conveyor belt of, yeah. of meteorites. <laughs> exactly. Uh, just sort of traveling from the center of Antarctica towards the coast and just sort of piling up or accumulating. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's, that's incredible. Yeah. So, so there's you know, lots of these kind of, you know, zones near the Transantarctic Mountains, for example, where there's many, many of these, you know, blue ice fields, as they're called, where there's, you know, high ablation rates of the ice and, and these meteorites are resurfacing there. And it's amazing because, you know, I, I kind of know in my head the process of how this happens and how we think this happens. But it's still just mind blowing when you actually go there and you see these rocks that are just sitting out there, hundreds of them, <laughs> and they're all meteorites. <laughs> Yeah, that's incredible. And and potentially from different parts of the solar system or, or yes, the universe, I guess, right? They're not, not necessarily from the same place. They're not potentially. I mean, they really are from different parts of the solar system. And they've you know come here from various asteroids, some of them, as I mentioned, from, from the moon and some from Mars. And so, yes, lots of lots of different kinds of meteorites. So let's talk a little bit about the what it's like to do field work in, in Antarctica. So first of all, how do you get there? Yeah, so... It's an adventure getting there, of course. I mean, you don't just take a commercial <laughs> flight out to uh, McMurdo Station. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, you know, from the U.S., you would go to Christchurch, New Zealand. That's the uh, Antarctic base station where you prepare uh, with the gear and whatever that you need to take down to with you to McMurdo Station. And this, of course, I mean, I'm talking about the U.S. Antarctic program. And so basically what I got to do was to head over to Christchurch for a, for a couple of times. I was lucky enough to do that. And then you get on one of these um, C-130 aircraft. They're, they're really not super comfortable. <laughs> they're, they're really <laughs> meant for cargo. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, the, the one-way trip out there is about eight hours or so. Uh, from Christchurch to McMurdo. And then usually it's at about the halfway point is when the pilots determine whether the weather is good enough and safe enough to land or not. And I've known colleagues that have made that trip, you know, half a dozen times and turned around because the weather was bad. And and so, yeah, so uh, I was lucky though. I mean, the both times that I went, we were able to go ahead the first time and land in McMurdo. So yeah. So what is what is McMurdo like? Like, give us a, a little sense of like what the the station itself is like. Uh, you know, it has sort of the feel of a mining town. <laughs> you know, it's uh, hmm. there's all of these dormitories and a number of little bars that are there as well, but and, and restaurants, but hmm. not quite. Uh, you know, they have a galley, of course, where they have you know food, and they've got sort of research facilities. And, and little clinic, a hospital. So it, it's about a thousand people that are stationed at McMurdo in the Austral summer. So that's typically, of course, from, you know, November through, through February or so. You have about a thousand 
researchers that are down there as well as a lot of support staff that are there as well to support all of the research activities. And so it's where you first, I mean, a lot of the people that actually are doing field work in Antarctica, they are doing it in different parts of remote areas of the continent, but they first, uh, that's the base station. You go to McMurdo first and you get equipped in terms of all of the food and gear that you're going to need in the field. And then you get out, you know, deployed out in the field with all that equipment. And in the meantime, of course, I mean, you, you do have to undergo some training as well, some safety training, crevasse uh, rescue training. And in our case, we had to get used to driving around on snowmobiles because that was mm. the primary means by which we would do the search, searching for meteorites on snowmobiles and and also, you know, we moved around camp quite a bit when we were stationed out and when we were actually deployed out in the field. Um, and we were out actually for almost eight weeks out in sort of the remote parts of Western wow, Antarctica. That's a long time. And yeah, it's a long time. And then, you know, we, we moved camp about five different times in the last time that I was there. And you have to do that by, you know, you have these sleds on which you pack all your gear and every person has two sleds then you can pack all your gear there and you attach it to the back of your snowmobile and you move you know move to another site and set up camp again and mm. <laughs> so there's a lot of gear a lot of logistics a lot sure. of logistics. yeah and so when you're camping there you're you're sleeping in tents on the ice yes exactly and so actually those tents are not that uncomfortable they're you know the, they're called scott tents and it's actually the same design that that's got the explorer, Antarctic explorer, used for his expedition. Right, uh, Robert Falcon Scott, right, the British explorer who led two expeditions to Antarctica exactly. in the early 1900s. Yeah, so these you know double wall tents that really can keep you pretty warm once you've got a little stove in your tent that kind of keeps things warm. But yeah, I mean it's um, you know it's a small a ten by ten foot footprint tent and when I was down there I was we were basically two to a tent and there were eight of us in my team and so we were out quite a ways from McMurdo almost you know fairly close to the South Pole actually is where we were in the western Antarctic ice sheet it was quite an experience (laughs) so what is a typical day like when you're out in 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 that area yeah it's uh it's actually pretty exhausting work, but it's exhilarating too. We usually have a fairly early start, and it's hard to get out of your warm sleeping bags in the morning, by the way. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I bet. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> or at all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and, and also, you know, the 24 hours of daylight, by the way, is, is sort of a magical thing. I mean, oh, right. and just, you know, the fact that you're out on this miles thick, kilometers thick ice yeah, and everything is so quiet. There's, you know, it's just so quiet, but yeah, you get used to it pretty quickly. So anyway, I, you know, you wake up usually pretty early in the morning and, you know, have your breakfast and usually just getting geared up to go out of the tent is quite an endeavor. You've got to put on, you know, dress in layers and you've got, you know, multiple things to, to keep you warm, you have usually, you know, I would wear like a face mask as well, the neoprene mask to sort of, because we were on snowmobiles most of the day and you don't, you know, the wind and the sun can be pretty harsh. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah, I imagine. it takes a, you know, a good hour and a half or so breakfast getting ready. And then you head on out and you've got to basically load up your snowmobile with your lunch for the day and a little bit of gear. And then you head on out 
to do a search. And so we would, you know, all of us would get together, eight of us, and head to a particular locality near camp. And most of these places, most of these ice fields that where we hunt for meteorites have been, there's been some reconnaissance trips that have been made prior. And so you know that there are going to be meteorites there. And so we do systematic searches where typically you'll line up at one end of the ice field and you will systematically drive down one length and then turn around and basically an offset of about 20 meters or so down and basically repeat that kind of pattern until you are traversing essentially the entire ice field. And so it's like a search party, basically. It's basically yeah. a search party. And then and you can see meteorites on these ice sheets. And you, with practice, you can actually get really eagle-eyed and you can spot these things from a distance as well. It depends, of course, on how big they are. But yeah. Because they're dark, they're right? They're dark. And they're on, on against a white background. Exactly. Yeah. So they're easy to spot. And you get better, you know, with time as well as you sort of get used to sort of scanning the ice just to spot these things. And as soon as somebody sees an, uh, a meteorite, you know, of course, that would, you know, everybody goes, oh, yeah, I found one. And everybody converges on that person. And then there's a whole process that happens, which, uh, you know, of collecting the meteorite, which we don't actually touch them with our hands. We want to make sure that we collect them cleanly. And so we mm -hmm. usually use these pre-cleaned stainless steel tools to pick them up and we put them in these pre-cleaned Teflon bags and we double bag them and we put these identifier labels in the bags. Just like the, you know, Apollo astronauts when they collected the lunar samples, the method is actually very similar. We photograph the samples before we put them in the bags. And then we also take a GPS location of where the meteorite was found. And typically then these meteorites are, are sort of brought back to camp and stored out, of course, I mean, they're stored out in the, on the ice for, for the eight weeks or so that you're collecting these things. And then they are transferred over in a container ship, also, you know, refrigerated until they are at the Johnson Space Center where they're opened up under dry nitrogen. And so they're kept very, very pristine. They're kept very clean. They're handled mm. very, very cleanly. And so, yeah, they're they're an incredible resource, and so we we treat them, of course, with with a lot of care. Sure, yeah. So eight weeks down there, about how many meteorites were you able to find? So in my field season, the last time I was there, we collected about three hundred and fifty wow. meteorites. Yeah, and that's that's about I would say average. I mean, I think in some of the field seasons they've collected over a thousand. In others, maybe might be less, you know, just depending on whether the conditions are very, you know, sometimes, of course, you know, we have these really, uh, we have blizzard conditions and, uh, you know, high, high winds. And so you can't really go out, go out in that kind of weather. And so I've known field seasons where, when they've been kind of trapped inside tents for most of the season. <laughs> so oh, it just depends. Miserable. I yeah. know. <laughs> How cold does it get? Well, the usual working conditions, during usual working conditions, I would say it was about negative 20 or so Fahrenheit. That's about sort of normal, negative 10 to negative 20. Wow. But with the winds, you know, the wind chill, it makes it feel like it's negative 60 or 70 sometimes. That's when it's the conditions when you really wouldn't want to be outside. And that's, that is brutal because the moment you step outside, you know, your breath freezes and you're eyelashes get iced over and <laughs> it's kind of 
it's it's pretty it's pretty rough. This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and I'm speaking with meteorite expert Minnie Wadwa about her expeditions to search for meteorites in Antarctica. When we come back, I'll ask Minnie about how she became interested in studying meteorites and about some of her other adventures doing fieldwork around the world. If you want to see Antarctica for yourself, one of the best ways is with Lindblad Expeditions. Discovery is in the Lindblad DNA. They've been exploring the most amazing places on the planet for more than 50 years. In 1966, Lars Erik Lindblad chartered a ship and brought the first non-scientific travelers to Antarctica. Today, Lindblad operates the most advanced fleet of expedition ships in the world, and their trips create unprecedented opportunities for guests. I'll be journeying to Antarctica in 2024 with Lindblad and the Rice University Traveling Owls. Want to join me? Visit alumni.rice.edu slash travelingowls or expeditions.com to get more information and to book your cabin for the journey of a lifetime. Welcome back. I'm Scott Solomon, and I'm joined by Minnie Wadwa, director of the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University. So tell me a little bit about your your childhood. You grew up in India. I did. I grew up all over the place in India, actually, because my dad was in the Indian Air Force. And so we moved every two or three years. And so we lived in a number of places in north and south and western India. And so one of the things that, you know, was nice about it, though, was that it sort of taught me, made me comfortable with change <laughs> and uh, made it, you know, I, I found it mm-hmm, easy to mm-hmm. to sort of get used to different places and meeting different people from different parts of the country so overall, I mean, it was a pain at the time, of course. You had to sort of uproot and, you know, leave your friends behind and make new friends. I mean, it was, as a, as a kid, that can be a little bit traumatic. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, in retrospect, it was actually, I think it was a, a really good thing. It was sure. a wonderful experience to be able to see so much of the country and and meet new people. I understand that for a while you wanted to be an, an architect. Is that right? I did. I That's... I kind of thought that's what I wanted to do. And in a way, uh, the Indian education system, it's, it's very different from, from here. You have to actually decide fairly young, almost straight out of high school, exactly what you are going to be and, and do. And there's not really any do-overs. So, you know, you have to decide if you're going to be an engineer or if you're going to be a doctor or, or whatever you want to do. You have to decide basically at age 17. <laughs> and uh, so I thought that that's what I wanted to do, be an architect. But also, you know, that there's these very, very kind of well-defined cutoffs for grades. And if you don't have those, you don't get into certain uh, tracks. And so I actually did not make it to architecture school. But then I started to think about other options. And I knew I liked science. And... You know, I thought maybe physics or chemistry might be interesting. 
I liked them. I, I liked biology too, but I didn't didn't enjoy the the dissection part of it. And, <laughs> <laughs> and actually a little bit squeamish about about doing that kind of thing. And and certainly sure. the sight of blood was just yeah, not not for me. Yeah. Um so I I thought about it and I sort of in India you usually go to university in in the same town that you live. It's not not like here. And so I went to the university close by and I investigated a little bit in terms of what my options were and I found out about geology, which I surprisingly I mean I, I hadn't really known <laughs> was in there. I I didn't even know, you know, that I could actually study geology in college. And I found that, hey, you know, it's really kind of a cool thing that you could apply the principles of physics and chemistry towards understanding the natural world. That's really what it is. And and so I, I thought that was really kind of what I wanted to do because I was always fascinated by the natural world in any case, rock and rocks, you know, the Himalayas, mountain ranges that were close by. And I always was fascinated by things outdoors, doing things outdoors. And so I, I certainly felt like I would enjoy doing the field work. And, but I, you know, I, it was, it was one of those things where when I visited the department, the professors there and, and the people there, they were all, they were all male professors. <laughs> there were, there was not a single woman professor in, in that department. And there oh. were very few women who were students in, in that department. And so it was kind of a, a little bit strange to me to, to, you know, be in that kind of environment, but I, I kind of felt like this is the subject that I wanted to study. And so that, that was fine. I, I was sort of dissuaded a little bit by some of the professors saying, Hey, you know, field work might be tough. You may not be able to do it. And, and, and that only kind of made me <laughs> want to do it more. So <laughs> I don't nice, know. Nice. <laughs> and then when you uh, came to the U.S. for grad school, did you find that that changed much when you were here? No. I mean, so, you know, this was, I hate to say it, but this was like almost uh, three decades ago now. So yeah. <laughs> things were things were very different. And, and I came to grad school and I found that there were not very many women in my class, in grad school, in my cohort. And so... There were maybe, you know, a few more women who were faculty, but maybe, I, you know, I would say five between five and 10% of the faculty were women. And I was actually very fortunate in that my PhD advisor was actually a woman. And I had no idea, actually, when I accepted uh, grad school <laughs> to work with her uh, that, she, you know, I, I thought it was, uh, I thought, you know, her name sort of, I wasn't familiar with it. And I thought it was a man actually. And oh, interesting. <laughs> but, you know, I, I wrote to her when I first found out that I was admitted and I said, Hey, I'm excited to be working with you. And, uh, and, and I, she still laughs about it because she said that I addressed the letter, dear sir. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so she, she, she put me right for sure. Because, you know, it was just not in my experience. You know, yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't really encountered that. Um, mm -hmm. in India. And so I just assumed she was a man, but yeah, yeah. most, most of the, most of the faculty were men as it turns out, but yeah, we're, you know, things are changing for sure. Yeah. So and, how has that experience affected the way that you do science today and, and, you know, training the next generation of students? Well, I mean, I, I, I recognize the value of mentorship and, and the value of representation for sure. And, 
I think this that's a very powerful thing for students to be able to see a woman who's doing the kinds of things that I'm doing, and especially a woman of color. I think it's empowering for many of the students who come from from backgrounds that are traditionally underrepresented in, in the sciences. And so I do take that seriously in, in the sense that I, I know that, you know, to me, it, it made a huge difference seeing a woman faculty member and recognizing, hey, you know, that's a pathway that might be open to me. So it can be very empowering. And I, I recognize that and I try to leverage it to open doors for others if I can. And you're married to Scott Perazinski, who has also been a guest on Wild World. And I understand right. that, that you guys had a very special moment together in Antarctica. Yes. <laughs> this was such a, such a coincidence, actually. I decided to go to Antarctica during a sabbatical year. And at the same time, Scott actually happened to have the job of basically the chief medical officer for the Antarctic. And so he <laughs> happened to be in McMurdo by coincidence over the same 48-hour period when I actually got out of the field, when we were taken out of the field, so at the end of the field season. And, you know, it could have gone very, very different way in the sense that because the way the weather is and things change, and we'd, of course, had the date on which we were supposed to get out of the field move around quite a bit as well. But as it turned out, we came out of the field at a certain time, and Scott happened to be in McMurdo at that point. <laughs> and he, I guess, had some plans that he had not told me about, but he sort of felt lucky, and he felt like maybe we would cross paths <laughs> in Antarctica. And so he he asked me to marry him at Scott, actually <laughs> at Scott's hut was the location oh, wow. <laughs> in McMurdo. It was amazing, I know. And, you know, at that point, I'd known Scott uh, I guess about close to two and a half years or two years or something like that. And, and I, you know, we knew that we were going to get married at some point, but this was, you know, the... Well, that's quite a proposal. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was quite a proposal, <laughs> one that I couldn't refuse for sure. <laughs> You're listening to Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon. And I'm speaking with planetary scientist and meteorite expert, Minnie Wadwa. In our final segment, we'll learn about some of the ways that meteorites might be important for our future survival. I love to travel and experience new places. And I've had the great pleasure of joining several rice-traveling owls trips operated by Lindblad Expeditions. Each of these trips, from the Galapagos Islands to the Belize Barrier Reef, Baja California, and the Upper Amazon River, has been absolutely incredible. Lindblad Expeditions make nature and wildlife accessible to anyone. Visit alumni.rice.edu slash travelingowls or expeditions.com to learn more and to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore next. This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and my guest is meteorite expert Minnie Wadwa, director of Arizona State University's School of Earth and Space Exploration. 
Now, you've done field work in, in, in some other places, too, and, and I understand that in, in 2017, you were part of an expedition in Iceland, and you were actually in an, in an accident there. What, what happened? Oh, gosh. Yeah, this was, oh, boy, this was a great project that I've, I've been looking forward to this field trip for a while. And uh, we were going to collect Icelandic lava flows that were analogs for lava flows on Mars. And we wanted to try to understand basically the history of water in some of these igneous rocks. And so, yeah, I went there in August of 2017 with one of my colleagues from the University of Iceland. He's a geologist and very familiar with some of the rocks in the region that we were going to collect, be collecting them from. And as it turned out, we were driving in this uh, field vehicle, an SUV-style vehicle, and my colleague was driving it, and he and his postdoc were sitting in the in the front, and I was sitting in the back with one of, actually, one of my friends accompanied me. Her name is Cyan Proctor. She actually, by the way, very interesting person. She's the one who flew with Inspiration4 last in 2021. Sure, yeah. And so <laughs> an incredible person. And she, you know, she, she's like, she loves to travel. And she, actually, Scott was supposed to have gone with me on that trip, but he just had published his, his book uh, and he was on a book tour mm on the East Coast. And so he couldn't come. And because he couldn't come, Cyan actually was like volunteered to just come along and, and help document some of the things about the trip. And she's very passionate about science communication. And so she was going to help with some of the science communication aspects of the trip. Mm. And so she and I were sitting in the back. We'd driven somewhere something like uh, five or six hours uh, sort of north and east of Reykjavik. And this is a fairly remote part of the country. And We'd stopped for lunch at this wonderful site that had these amazing rock formations and columnar joints, actually, in, in basalt that are really incredible. We'd finished lunch and we were just starting to get back out on the road. And uh, there was a caravan of cars, which is really kind of unusual. We were in a very remote part of the country and not very many people around. But there had been several people that had stopped at the same lunch spot that we did. And they were all getting out at about the same time. And so... My colleague started to accelerate the vehicle to get past these cars, and one of the cars in the caravan sort of slid out of their spot to try to overtake as well, and they crashed into us, and the vehicle just kind of did a few flips. It rolled over, and I unfortunately was not wearing a seatbelt because mm. we'd, you know, we'd just been coming out of, the, out of getting our lunch, and I was taking some pictures out the back window, and I hadn't had the chance to buckle in. And... Basically, I, you know, I was tossed out of the vehicle. Wow. And so it was a, you know, vehicle ejection. And, and I actually don't remember, I don't remember anything wow. from that incident. I actually don't even remember a half an hour before the accident. It's hmm. something that's sort of completely wiped from my memory banks. Wow. wow. <laughs> but probably a good thing because I, you know, it was, um, I kind of remember waking up in the middle of the night and not from knowing where I was, but I was in, the emergency room in Reykjavik, they had to airlift me out of the field. But I, I had, you know, a lot of broken bones and fractures, mostly on my left-hand side. I had a completely fractured pelvis and a punctured lung. And yeah, it was, I was in bad shape. I actually was very, very lucky to have survived because yeah. Scott tells me that, you know, in his emergency room doc experience, not very many 
vehicle ejection accidents, you know, basically the, there's not a good survival rate mm-hmm. for those types of accidents. And so I, I was just very, very lucky. And it was, yeah, it was, it was an incredible year of recovery after that. It was, you know, in a wheelchair for about four months and lots of physical therapy, but, uh, but yeah, I was I was <laughs> I was very lucky to have survived, and then I was very lucky to have had some very very good care. Sure. And Scott was able to, you know, he 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 flew out of of New York, you know, that same night, and was able to be there, and actually advocated for me to be flown back to the U.S., which I think, you know, certainly I don't know, I I don't think I would have been able to do that if I'd been by myself, and um, I was able to get really good care at uh, Mass General Hospital, and then rehab for. And, and a great facility after that. So it really helped me get back on my feet. And I've, I've you know, I've been able to do a couple of half marathons since then. And That's fantastic. Hike the Grand Canyon. So it's wow, wow. <laughs> I'm doing doing okay. Yeah. How would you say that experience affected your approach to field work? Do you do you do anything differently these days? Gosh, you know, I I I make sure to wear my seatbelt. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> no, but other than that, I would say no. I mean, I you know, I I actually, as I said, I I don't remember it at all. And my my friend actually, Cyan, still I think she she still has a little bit of PTSD when she's sitting in the back seat of a car. She tells me that it's kind of still a little bit, you know, because. She remembers the whole thing. She was like, she was belted in. She remembers when the vehicle was sort of rolling over. Oh my gosh. But you know, yeah, it's I don't remember anything. And so, I mean, the only thing, like I said, I mean, there's not really much that I could have done except yes. I mean, I I think you know I know that seatbelts save lives for sure. <laughs> so an important yeah, important public the, safety the, announcement. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. But I'm, I'm still I'm still very much excited about, you know, being out in the field and, and being outdoors. And I love doing that. And Scott and I love to be love to be sort of uh, exploring and hiking. So we've talked a little bit about what we can learn from meteorites about our past and the history of the of the universe. But do you think they might also be important for our future? I mean, we know, as you said, that a meteorite struck the Earth 65 million years ago and, and nearly wiped out life on earth do you think something like that could happen right it's not a matter of maybe it's a matter of when right Hmm. it's it's going to happen i mean just probabilistically that's going to happen sometime in the future it's uh whether we're prepared for it or not i think this is the first time in human history or actually in earth's history not human history but earth's history where there is a species on this planet that can actually do something about that. And so, uh, you know, I don't know if you heard about the DART mission. Oh, right. Uh, NASA's double asteroid redirection test. Yes, exactly. That essentially was a test to see whether you could divert the course of an asteroid by by actually impacting it with, with some force. And so we have the capacity to, to actually take action, uh, but we have to kind of know where they are. And so there's programs basically to map the locations of many of these near-Earth asteroids in particular. And so, you know, there's an effort to sort of try at least above a certain size threshold to really map every single object, say that's over 140 meters or something like that. So the goal is to try to to map as many 
close to 99% of those in the next few years. And so I think we're trying to make the effort to, to, to make sure that we can, we can stay safe in the future. And, you know, it may not happen for another, you know, 10 million years, or it might happen tomorrow. So, you know. What about some of the other ways that space rocks might be important for our future? Things like, you know, mining of asteroids, for example. There is definitely some value in um, in in the potential utilization of the resources that these objects may have. At the current time, at least, I think the return on investment on some of these <laughs> things is is there's not there's not a great business case to be made for it just because of you know the the cost of of doing something like that of mining these objects for say rare metals or something like that it's not something that is going to kind of earn anybody a profit at this point probably until there's some you know real investment in technologies and ability to do those kinds of things but it's you know in the future maybe that you know that might be a possibility i don't know if you've seen the expanse but uh, that, sure. you know that's the kind of thing that potentially could potentially happen in the future yeah they have people living living in the asteroid belt right the belters who are out there and, <laughs> and they're mining exactly. mining resources yeah, yeah. <laughs> right but yeah, I think that that's probably we're a long ways from that at this point so if you're standing out say in Antarctica and you've just discovered a, a, a meteorite you're you're holding it in your hand, how how does that make you feel? I mean, do you feel like you're better connected to the the universe, or does it just kind of make you feel small and insignificant? You know, I've been lucky enough to have the opportunity to hold meteorites in my hand through much of my career. You know, and and being out in the field and being able to actually recover them, you know, rocks that have never really been touched by human hands before. That is an amazing feeling, right? And uh, yeah, it is mind blowing when you think about it. You know where these where these rocks have been, where they came from, how much time was involved in actually forming these rocks. It is mind blowing, but it's uh, one of those things where I love what I do because it sort of is is inspiring. You know to think about we as human beings having the capacity to actually tease apart the history that's locked in these rocks and learn something about our very origins. And, and we know so much at this point about the history of, of our solar system, about the history of our planet and how it evolved and all of these kinds of things. I mean, it's possible because, you know, we, we know where to look and we, we can actually tease apart some of that history. So, yeah, it's just, it is inspiring to me. And now, in addition to studying meteorites, you're also working on the first mission that seeks to bring samples back from Mars to Earth, right? That's something that's that's been it's been a dream of mine since I was in graduate school because, you know, I started my grad studies studying meteorites from Mars. And that was in itself like one of I think that that was really kind of what put me on the course to being a meteoriticist really is is are these meteorites from Mars? I had no idea that they were these rocks that we thought thought were from Mars. And so, I mean, just being able to kind of study these rocks that came from another planet and, you know, vicariously being a geologist on, on Mars, I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> but I always dreamt of, of getting some actual rocks back 
from Mars that are you know not meteorites, rocks that we can actually carefully select where we understand the geologic context and bring those back. And we're actually doing that. We're doing that right now with the Perseverance rover. It's collecting those well-characterized rocks. And we're going to bring them back in 10 years. And I'm, I'm just super excited to be, you know, the lead scientist for that, for that mission. And it's going to be amazing. That is incredibly exciting. I mean, it'll be a moment in history for sure. It will. It'll, it'll be historic for sure. So what kinds of things do you hope to be able to learn from the samples collected directly from Mars that you haven't been able to learn by studying pieces of Mars that come to earth as meteorites? Ah, yes. So, you know, the enduring question about Mars is, was there ever life that originated on that planet? Was there ever life that existed on that planet? And so the big question that we hope to answer when we bring back those rocks from Mars is to understand whether there's evidence of ancient life in these rocks. And I think it's going to fundamentally change our perspective as human beings if we find some evidence like that. And on the other hand, if we don't, I mean, that that tells us something as well about how planets evolve. And we certainly think that Mars had water in the past. And so, you know, whether or not life originated, I think, could be a really fundamental finding from these rocks. And then, of course, I mean, I think that that fundamental finding does not happen in a vacuum, right? I mean, I think we want what I what I'm really excited about is learning about Mars as a planet. How, how did it form? How did it evolve? This geologic evolution. What was the history of water? What was the history of its atmosphere? All of that has bearing, of course, on whether life ever arose there or whether life existed there. And so, I think just understanding all of those things about our neighbor, I think our neighbor planet, are, are going to be is going to be fantastic. Well, Minnie Wadwa, thank you so much for uh, being on Wild World and telling us all about your fascinating work. Thank you. It was great talking. That's it for this episode. To learn more about Minnie Wadwa's work on meteorites, check out the show notes where we'll have links to her website and her fabulous TED Talk. We'll also have links on our website, wildworldshow.com, along with some photos of Minnie and her work in Antarctica. You can listen to Wild World anywhere you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at at Wild World Show. This episode was sponsored in part by Lindblad Expeditions and the Rice University Traveling Owls. Learn more about their trips to Antarctica and other exciting destinations at expeditions.com or alumni.rice.edu slash traveling owls. This episode of Wild World was produced by Three Wire Creative. I'm Scott Solomon. Join me next time as we explore another part of our wild world.